Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today is Martin Arnold, our banking editor, Sam Fleming, our financial policy correspondent, and down the line from Madrid, we have our bureau chief there, Tobias Buck. And also joining us from Headhunters, Odgers, we have Simon Hayes. Today, we'll be discussing the replacement of Barclays chairman with John McFarlane coming into that role. Also, we'll be looking for the last time, or penultimate time probably, at the Scottish independence debate, just a few days ahead of that referendum. And finally, to Spain, where Santander has appointed a new chairman as well, following the death of Emilio Botín. First to Barclays, though, and um, as I say, I'm joined by Simon Hayes from Odgers Headhunters, who knows John McFarlane, the new chairman at Barclays, very well. I don't think you were involved directly in this appointment, Simon, but you think John is a, is a good choice for this role, I gather. Yeah, just to stress, we weren't involved at all, so I can speak sort of freely and hopefully objectively. <laughs> I think he's a really terrific choice. If you read any sort of articles or press coverage about John, they normally use phrases like sort of straight talking or straight shooter and such. And it's exactly that's the way he is. I mean, he's a really charming individual, but don't be under any illusions. He's very straight talking, very focused. He knows what he's at and he knows what he wants to achieve. And you know exactly where you stand with him. There's no obfuscation. There's no room for doubt. And I think that's the, the thing that I most like about him. Uh, he's someone that has the charm necessary to get things done. But you sure as hell know that he's going to get things done. Now, he's been at Aviva for a few years and he certainly seems to have got things done there. Yeah, he obviously went in there at a tough time. The company had underperformed. And I think if you look at Aviva sort of at the time, the thing that always struck me was you didn't really know where they were going in terms of strategy. And if you look back over sort of investor presentations over the previous half a dozen years, they were always sort of similar but different. And you, you struggled to think, what on earth are they really about? And he very clearly went in, took on the role of executive chairman, so absolutely rolled his sleeves up. And you knew after a very brief period, this is where we want to get to. This is what we're going to do. These are the businesses that we want to be involved in. These are the countries that we want to get out of. And then he said very clearly, look, um, I need a world-class chief executive to run those businesses and to execute the strategy. And he went and hired one. And he found a guy who'd been in Asia. So it was a, a truly global search. And he found a guy that I think most investors think very highly of. So absolutely clear and resolute and then sort of goes and does the right thing and if it means unpopular decisions in terms of strategy or people or whatever he'll do it in a professional way but as I say he, he sure as hell will do it. The big question I suppose is whether he'll make similar changes at Barclays because as you say one of his big things at Aviva was to, to bring in a new chief executive at Barclays there are question marks still over the um, the chief executive there Anthony Jenkins having gone through some very difficult times a pretty abrupt change of strategy how long do you think he'll give it before he uh, he thinks about a shake-up at Barclays? I think the, the first thing he'll want to 
to understand is, do they really have a plan? Do they really know what they want to get to? If you talk to him back about his days at ANZ, the thing that comes out straight away was that when he went there, they'd had lots of similar, but obviously on a smaller scale, problems. And the first thing he did was to sit down uh, with external and obviously internal people and say, what do we want to achieve in terms of the culture? What do we want to achieve in terms of the strategy? What do we want to achieve in terms of returns? And they came up with a really clear plan from talking to my colleagues sort of out in Australasia. And I believe, I haven't checked this, that actually sort of the, the breakout plan that they came up with and that they went to investors with then became a Harvard Business School study. And that doesn't surprise me because I know from talking to analysts, and I used to be on myself many, many decades ago, that sort of he was very clear about what they wanted to do. And so I think with Barclays, it'll be, what are we trying to achieve? And then he won't be remotely afraid to say, I just don't believe in that, or I don't think that's achievable. And so I think it'll be a two-step process. Where are we? What are we trying to get to? Do I believe it? And then secondly, sort of, do I believe we've got the management team in place to make that happen? Thank you very much, Simon, for that introduction to the new chairman of Barclays. I'm going to turn now to Martin for his assessment. So Martin, what do you think on the uh, all-important question of how drastic he will be in terms of shaking up Barclays? John McFarlane showed at Aviva that he was prepared to be very hands-on, taking over as executive chairman when the previous chief executive left, and uh, as you said, playing a a very key role in hiring a new executive team. He will take his time. He's joining the Barclays board in January before taking over as chairman in April. And by then, the new Barclays strategy will have been in place, which is to shrink its investment bank and to cut more costs and cut more staff. And if the strategy is not showing signs of working, I don't imagine that he will hang around before making whatever necessary changes he thinks are are required. But I mean, just to say, I think another point to make here is that there is a real dearth of suitable candidates for some of these big banking jobs. Both RBS and Barclays approached Mr. McFarlane about becoming their chairman. And RBS is in the process of trying to find a replacement for Sir Philip Hampton before he uh, expected to leave next year. And a lot of the bankers with sufficient experience have been ruled offside, essentially, by damaged by the, the financial crisis. And banking has just become much more demanding. To be a chairman of a big bank is a full-time job now. And you face all kinds of regulatory pressures. And so it'll be very interesting to see who RBS turned to. But John McFarlane was an obvious candidate for both of them to approach, I think, because of his experience and because of his ability to deal with difficult situations, because whoever takes over at RBS will face a similar set of challenges. That's a neat segue, Martin, into our second topic of the day, which is Scotland. RBS, obviously, one of the biggest employers in Scotland and has been in the news in connection with that story over the past week because they're among a number of big employers to come out and say that in the event of uh, a yes vote for independence, they would move their headquarters south of the border. This has become quite a theme over the past few days, hasn't it? certainly has. Uh, all of the Scottish-based banks, from RBS to Lloyds, but including Clydesdale and TSB and even Tesco Bank, have all come out last week and said that they would re-domicile to 
London. This is essentially because they can't take the risk that credit rating agencies and investors would consider them a less stable credit if they were to stay in Scotland, which is likely to happen because they would no longer potentially be uh, subject to the backup of the Bank of England as the lender of last resort. And they instead would be subject to an unknown guarantee from the nascent Scottish state. And who knows what reserves the country will have. And that is too much uncertainty for banks to be able to cope with. And therefore, they've all said exactly what they would do, um, which is move south if Scotland votes for independence. But there are many more questions facing all the banks, not least the currency question, what happens to the deposits and savings of Scottish customers if there is a change in currency? What is going to happen with the currency? Will it be pegged to sterling? Will it be an entirely new currency? Will Scotland become a member of the EU? Will there be a uh, compensation scheme for depositors? What happens fiscally? All of the, the products that they offer in Scotland could potentially have different tax arrangements. You know, there's just a a plethora of of questions facing these banks. Absolutely. We reported last week on one dimension of that currency issue that you alluded to there with apparently a flurry of moves of corporate and private customer deposits uh, from north of the border to, to the south. But in terms of the the broader question of of currency, Sam, you've been reflecting on what actually does or might happen to to the the management of the currency from the central bank point of view. Yes, I mean, in a sense, the financial sector of Scotland is voting uh, with its feet already on the question of what the currency union will look like. There won't be a currency union, according to the Westminster parties. That is refuted uh, by the SNP, which says that this is a bluff and there will be a deal on currency. The financial sector has made up its mind. It does not expect that deal to happen. And so it is already migrating. The possible result could be a currency peg. That's one of the options that will be um, available to Scotland, where they effectively peg their currency to the pound. The problem, as Credit Suisse was setting out towards the end of last week, is if you are trying to maintain a currency peg, then that is the prime focus of the central bank and the country that is maintaining that peg. And the idea of supporting a very large financial sector has to be secondary to that. And that is a real concern if you're maintaining a very, very oversized financial sector, especially when you haven't got much in the way of reserves. I mean, if you look at the statistics uh, about the financial sector in Scotland as it stands, it really is quite staggeringly large. Uh, It's about 7% of employment of the country, about half of which is banking, and the other half is insurance and fund management, and 13% of GDP. So this is a very, very important sector for the Scottish economy. And that sector currently, as we've been reporting really over the past few days, the banks, but also uh, Standard Life, the big uh, insurance company, is also among those companies that have said they are going to move, or at least some of their operations, south of the border. And we should say in the straw poll of the top 30 employers in Scotland, we found that of those that actually chose to answer the question, 100% of companies were not only concerned about the impact on Scotland and on the UK of a yes vote, but also would seriously consider moving their domicile. So it's uh, not restricted this issue to, to financial services companies in any way. We'll obviously come back next week in the podcast to look at the outcome of the vote and assess any further implications. Our final topic for the day is Santander, Spain's biggest bank, which has had the same leadership for the past near 30 years with Emilio Bottin in the, in the chairman's seat, is now going through a period of tumult. Mr Bottin died last week at the age of 79 and the reins have been handed to his daughter, Anna Bottin, who until now has been the head of Santander in the UK. 
We're joined by Tobias Buck, our Bureau Chief in Madrid. So, Tobias, thank you very much for joining us. As I said, last week was a pretty tumultuous week for people uh, within Santander. It was, uh, I think it was probably a keenly felt event across the country. If you look at some of the Spanish press coverage of Mr. Botin's death, how shaken do you think the bank was by this event? Well, I think people were, were very shaken and indeed even, even shocked by his death, uh, which, you know, on the one hand is, uh, is somewhat strange given that he was obviously not a young man. He, was, uh, he died just weeks away from his 80th birthday. But he did appear to be in, in very good health. Uh, he was a man who took great care of himself. He did sport. He, he ate carefully and so forth. But I think the shock stems above all from the gap that he leaves. I mean, this is a man who basically single-handedly turned Santander from a small regional lender into a global financial empire. He's a man who had extraordinary reach, not just in the world of finance, but also in business and in politics. He was a man who always stayed you know, close to political leaders, whether in Spain or in Brazil or in Mexico or, or elsewhere. So he just leaves a very large gap uh, and that, despite his age, I think has led to, to yes, to shock and, and left people quite shaken. Not just inside the bank, of course, but but also in the in the rest of the Spanish business world. Now, as I said, his daughter Anna Botin, in her early fifties, is taking over from him immediately. She's in Madrid already, I think, and I believe Monday morning she made her first public statements about what she plans to do. Yes, indeed. She had a, her debut um, appearance at, a, at an extraordinary shareholders meeting, which was actually called long before Mr. Botin's death to confirm um, the buyback of, of Santander's Brazil uh, operations. But that basically gave her uh, the chance to introduce herself to shareholders. She didn't give uh, many details on what she plans to do. Uh, she basically was keen to broadcast a message of continuity and reassurance. She praised, uh, obviously, her father, whom she always referred to as our former chairman, so she sort of tried to not sound too personal about this. She said she would uh, maintain the dividend. She said she would maintain the broader strategy. And I mean, I think it's probably too early for her to really set out how she wants to change the bank. But it was, by all accounts, a a well-received performance. She arrives at the bank. She starts her job, I think, with a lot of goodwill and sympathy from colleagues and shareholders. And uh, we'll obviously learn in the in the weeks ahead uh, whether she is uh, aiming for a for a major shakeup at the bank or whether she indeed tries to maintain the line, the strategy that her father espoused. Excellent. Thank you for that on the ground view, Tobias. Martin, you've had a view of Anna Botin at close quarters from her leadership of the UK a subsidiary of, of Santander. First of all, how would you assess her performance here and, and her suitability to take the, the reins of the, the whole group? And then maybe also a, a word on which way you would bet in terms of continuity of broader strategy at Santander or, or uh, something more of a shake-up? She leaves Santander UK with plaudits and praises ringing in her ears all the way from um, George Osborne, the Chancellor, to uh, Anshu Jain, the co-chief executive of Deutsche Bank. Everyone seems to have nothing but good words to say about her. Her record, the pure numbers, don't necessarily back that up totally because everything from revenues to profits to market share to total assets uh, all fell during her time, the three years in charge of uh, Santander UK. However, it must be pointed out that she had some fairly strong headwinds to cope with, and she proved to be, I think, more than anything, an exceptionally smooth operator politically and in the industry, and certainly won a lot of friends because of that. 
she came up with a very attractive and successful product in the 123 account, which was quite innovative and, and helped Santander to attract a greater share than any other bank of customers who were switching their accounts. She announced a, a very innovative tie-up with Funding Circle, which is a peer-to-peer lender, an online lender that allows the man in the street to lend money to companies. And uh, Santander agreed to tie up with them. And so she's willing to challenge received ideas, to challenge the boundaries, to you know push the envelope. And so it suggests she's a revolutionary and she's going to shake up Santander. Uh, as well, hang on, hang on. <laughs> you know, she will not be able to do whatever she likes, first of all, because although... The Botin family is a large shareholder. It's only got, I think, less than 2% of the bank. And there are various vested interests and some pretty powerful people in the management and on the board of Santander. So she's going to have to take them all with her. There are some some pretty interesting issues that she will have to grapple with. One is that for all his success, there are questions about Emilia Botin's strategy of almost arbitraging between regions by selling off businesses and then buying them back as the the bank is in the process of doing with Brazil. It's floated its US operations. There's um, a plan to, to spin off the UK operations. There's also questions about its strategy in the euro area. It's got a collection of businesses in Germany and in the Nordic area, but there's more of a patchwork than any kind of coherent whole. So what will she do there? And also finally on capital, the Analysts do think that Santander is one of the more weakly capitalised businesses and with the European Central Bank stress tests happening this year, that could be an issue for her as well. So lots for her to get uh, her teeth into. As Tobias said, she didn't say much about that uh, on Monday morning, but I'm sure we will hear from her soon. That's it for this week of the Banking Podcast. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin and Sam here in the studio and Simon Hayes from Odgers and Tobias Buck from our Madrid bureau down the line. Also, thank you for listening. And remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.